Well, it's certainly good, good uh, to see each one of you here uh, this evening. Glad you're here in Bible class and hopefully the things that we have to say will, number one, come straight from the Word of God and they'll be uh, exegeted correctly and hopefully that they'll help us in our daily life as we continue to serve the Lord uh, here on this earth. Looking forward to that day when uh, time will be no more and uh, we'll be out of this world of sorrow and sickness and death and we'll be in a place where there will be no more of that forever and ever, and we can sing praises to God forever. Two weeks ago, we began a class on love. And on that occasion, we went through a great deal of introduction material, looking at the book of 1 Corinthians, trying to put chapter 13 in the proper context, what was going on in Corinth, and we got we made it down to a part that I called missing love, and we looked we looked at verses one, two, and three of that chapter, where Paul said that if they could speak, if he could speak in the tongues of men and of angels and didn't have love, that he was just making a hollow sound, or if he had faith so that he could say to a mountain, "Be moved," and he didn't have love that he was nothing, or that if he said, if I give all I have to feed the poor, even to the point of burning my body, and I don't do it from love, then it profits me nothing. Cultivating love is one of the greatest challenges that we face in our Christian walk and that any church leadership faces is having, instructing, and guiding, and bringing people along to where all members have that strong agape love. A type of love that is steadfast, that is a suffering type of love, that knows no bounds, that bears no retaliation in any shape, form, or fashion in the life of that individual. And that's certainly a challenge for us. Number one, because the devil doesn't want us to have any of the qualities or the qualifications. And number two, the world that surrounds us is a very egotistical, selfish society where we're taught by news, by song, by television programs, by media of any shape, form, or fashion that I'm entitled to whatever I want to do and nobody has a right to tell me I can't do it and whatever I want, I'm entitled to it even if it belongs to you and we don't have a right to, to, to have any feelings along that line. Kennison said, some may justifiably doubt whether a word such as love that can be applied with ease to both God and pizza can fully illuminate the character of a Christian life. In other words, if I asked you what type of pizza you love, 
we say, well, I love pepperoni pizza, or I love supreme, or I love this, or I love that. And yet we turn around and use that same word to say, I love God. And far too many people don't make a much of a difference between loving pizza and loving God. So tonight, we're going to continue our study, and we're going to continue some in introductory thoughts as we get ready to get to chapter 13 and verse 4. But think about tonight, not just missing love, but, but motivating love. What motivates me and you in our life? What is it that drives us each morning when we get up? What is it that drives us through the day? Well, Paul, in talking in, in the context of this book, talks about the Corinthian brethren as being carnally minded. Look at 1 Corinthians 3, beginning at verse 1 with me. And I bring this to us by way of saying that this is what God wrote to this church at Corinth these number of years later when Paul addressed their problems. And so I don't know your mindset tonight. I don't know where your heart is tonight. 100%. I would say that the fact that we're here on a Sunday afternoon at 5 o'clock for Bible class speaks, very, speaks great volumes for who we are. But oftentimes you look at a person in the eyes and you don't know what's going on right behind those eyes and in that brain. So just, just a couple of things here. In 1 Corinthians 3 and verse 1, Paul said, And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual people, but as to carnal, as to babes in Christ. Now, when a person, when he was there for his 18 months, according to Acts 18, when they first obeyed the gospel, I'm sure he spoke to them as babes in Christ. But this is some years later. And he said in verse 2, I fed you with milk and not with strong food. For until now, you were not able to receive it, and even now, you are not still able. For you are still carnal, for where there are envy, strife, and divisions among you, are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? For one says, I'm of Paul, and another, I'm of Paulus. Are you not carnal? Here was, an, here was a congregation of people. Paul had been there for some time with them. And there was envy and strife and division after these years where there should have been love administered, where there should have been understanding administered, where there should have been patience exhibited, where there should have been kindness shown. These people still call themselves Christians. Apparently they still met even though they made a mockery of the Lord's Supper on, on the first day of the week, they still met and gave. Here were people who were going through the motions of acting like they were Christians. But internally, Paul said, you're just carnal people. You think like the world thinks. And that's a danger that we fall into, even if we come through the building every time the doors are open. Look at the next chapter with me. Chapter 4, begin with me at verse 7. 
Paul says, For who makes you differ from another? And what do you have that you did not receive? Now remember, the people to whom he's writing had been converted initially by the Apostle Paul. At least he had established a church. He'd been there 18 months with them. In a very wicked, wicked city, as we mentioned two weeks ago. So he's writing to these people who no longer have very high esteem for the Apostle Paul, nor any other of the apostles, as we're fixing to find out. Now, if you did indeed receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? Notice the arrogancy of the individuals. Paul had taught them, had fed them with milk, had fed them like babies. They received that initially, and Paul says, if you received it, why do you boast now like you never received it? You are already full. Sarcasm. You are already rich. You have reigned as kings without us, and indeed I could wish that you did reign, that we might also reign with you. Notice what he says in verse 9. For I think that God has displayed us, the apostles, last as men condemned to death. For we have been made a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. That word spectacle. We think about that. We think of a spectacle as something that draws attention, right? We say, well, they, there was a spectacle going on in the grocery store today. Or there was a spectacle going on here. And we, but that Greek word there is a Greek word that means we get our, our English word theater from. And so in the Greek culture... There were plays that were acted out in the theater. And there were people who observed that, that acting out and whatever kind of whatever type of play or whatever type of activity it was. And Paul says, we have been made like a spectacle in the sense of everyone's looking at us. And how have you treated us? You have treated us last. You have made both to the angels who look down from heaven and to men. But notice he doesn't stop there. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. You ever seen anybody that you couldn't tell anything to, but you could ask them anything you wanted to? That's the kind of people Paul's talking to. We're fools. Who's he talking about? The apostles. The ones who initially taught them, the ones who initially fed them, the ones who initially imparted the spiritual gifts to them. We're the fools, but you, you're the wise ones. We are weak, but you are strong. Why would Paul say they they viewed him as weak? Was it because he had agape love and he didn't retaliate and he took whatever they dished out? in the spirit of Christ, like exactly like Christ did? You are distinguished, but we are dishonored. you got to remember to whom he writes, church in Corinth, a city known for human wisdom that put a, placed a great value on that. To this present hour, we both hunger and thirst, and we're poorly clothed and beaten and homeless. And we labor, working with our own hands. Paul will say to them later on, 
I robbed other churches to do you service. Please forgive me this wrong. Paul said, I, I'm working with my own hands here. You remember Acts 18, he, he met Apollos and um, he met uh, Aquila and Priscilla, fellow tent makers like him. Paul worked in Corinth and fed himself, and yet they treated him as if he were the last person on earth, as if he were not anywhere on their level whatsoever. Being reviled, we bless. Being persecuted, we endure. Being defamed, we entreat. We have been made as the filth of the world, the offscouring of all things until now. <clears throat> I hope you never go through anything in your life like some elders and preachers and other, and other members of the church have to go through from time to time with members who look down their noses at those who try to help them, who try to do the right thing, who come to them in the spirit of Christ and try to get them to change and do what they ought to do. And the way that they're treated is exactly what Paul's talking about here. Now he says in verse 14, I do not write these things to shame you. Wasn't his original intent, although it should have brought shame to them. He says, but as my beloved children, I warn you. For though you might have 10,000 instructors in Christ, that word instructors, before we go further, is the same word that's used in Galatians 5, 22 and 23. Excuse me, Galatians, yeah, Galatians 3, excuse me, 22 and 23, relative to the schoolmaster. They were under a schoolmaster. It's a word for tutor, a word for a personal tutor. And that was common in that day. When a child left the house, it wasn't uncommon for him to have or her to have a personal tutor that walked with him everywhere that person went all day, training them how to live. And Paul there in chapter 3 will compare then the, the old law to the schoolmaster. That is not somebody who sits behind the desk as a, as the lead, but as a person who walked with him. Paul said, you may have 10,000 tutors, is what it literally means, but you have not many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I have begotten you through the gospel. Don't forget, I was there for 18 months. I had to have the Lord tell me, don't be afraid, Paul. I had many people in this city. Therefore, he says, I urge you, imitate me. Now, I read all that to show to say this. Look back at verses 12 through 15. We're not going to reread it. Just look at it. Paul said they were reviled. They were persecuted. They were defamed. They were made of the filth of the earth. The offscouring. Who does that sound like? Just a few years earlier. When he walked on the earth. Doesn't that sound exactly like the way people treated Christ? And what does Peter say in 1 Peter 2? When he was reviled, what? He didn't revile again. That's what Paul's saying. That's the kind, he's demonstrating to them, this is the kind of love you need. This is how you ought to be. What motivated them? Their arrogancy, their selfishness. I'll ask me and you as we move on. What motivates us in our lives? 
Some people are motivated by pride and arrogance. People can't get past not having their way. They think they know the only way to do things, and they know the best way to do things, and they and anybody who doesn't do it their way is not doing it as well as they can. That's what the Corinthians thought. Some people are motivated by money. You remember Balaam from the Old Testament. Remember Numbers 22 when, when Balak sent people to him to come and to, and to curse God's people. He said, let me go ask God what he wants. Spend the night here and I'll come back and tell you tomorrow. When he came back, he said, I can't go with you. God said, I couldn't take anything from you and I can't do that. So when we went back and Balak was told, he sent greater amounts of money. He sent greater people in distinction. And Balaam's answer was what? I can't go. God said I couldn't go. That's not what he said, was it? Let me go ask God again what he said. He already knew what God said. He was motivated by the money. Second Peter 2.15 talks about those who were like Balaam who worked for the wages of righteousness. Some people are motivated by power. First eldership I ever served under. A long time ago. The man and his son-in-law were the two elders. I had met them. I had preached for them. I thought they were fantastic people until I got there and had been there with my family for about a year. And I found out that this man, was the, he was the man in charge. And if you didn't believe it, you could ask him. He could tell you. And I asked him one time, how do you make decisions? Because people were coming to me complaining. And I, he said, I said, how do you make decisions? And he said, I just think, I just do what I think needs to be done. I said, you ever listen to the brethren? I mean, I'm amazed by, I mean, I mean not just I'm amazed, I'm, 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 great, I'm grateful for the, the elders getting up into this pulpit and asking for your suggestions on such things as the mold and other things. You know, bear with us. If you have any questions, come to us. We'll be glad to talk about it. That was not characteristic of this gentleman at all. And I asked him, I said, why don't you talk to the brethren and get the feel of the congregation? And he said, because then you're letting somebody else make the decision, and I don't get to. That was his attitude as an elder. Power. But we, we must be and should be motivated by love in what we do. In fact, Paul says, unless we are, we're wasting our time in what we're doing. We're not motivated by sincere selflessness like Christ. Then we're not, we're not pleasing to God. We are to have self-sacrificing love for several people. Go with me, if you will, to Matthew chapter 5, and then we're going to move on into our text. Just wanted to try to bring in all of God's word as much as we can before we look at those qualifications or those characteristics of our love. Matthew 5, beginning at verse 43, here's Jesus talking in the Sermon on the Mount. And he went through, particularly in chapter 5, the series of things that said, you have heard, been taught by these of old, but I'm saying unto you, well, he's explaining what the old law really meant there. He's not giving some new law. 
in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Where does that say that in the Old Testament? Doesn't say that, does it? Jesus said, but I say unto you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Look at those four things. Now, knowing what we know about the Lord now, that's exactly what he did when he was on earth. He loved his enemies. He blessed those that cursed him. He did good to those who hated him. And he prayed for those who despitefully used him. But look at verse 45. Here's the reason why. That you may be sons of your Father in heaven. So if I'm asked a question, as Wayne talked about this morning, being ready to talk to people, and that should be on our minds, and somebody in the world says, what do I do, what must I do to be saved? Well, I mean, probably the smallest children here could give you the plan of salvation. I'm sure they've been taught it from the time they can understand English. And yes, so there, there is a plan of salvation that must be followed. But notice what Jesus says. Unless I have this kind of love in verse 44, I can't be a son of my father. If I'm going to be a child of my father in heaven, I've got to be, verse 44 has got to be characteristic of my life. I've got to love my enemies. And pray for those who despitefully use me. I've got to bless those that curse me. I've got to have that kind of attitude in order to be saved. So I might say to the person, yes, here's a plan of salvation you have to go through. Why? Because you have to touch the blood of Christ to be saved. You can't have your sins washed away any other way than the blood of Christ washed away. And the only way to reach that blood is in baptism. Yes. But once I do that, Oh, there are a lot of things I still have to do. There's a lot of growing I must do. And one of those things is I've got to love, have this kind of love. He goes on to say, For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For, now Jesus asked him a very piercing question, If you love those who love you, what reward do you have? You know, if I only care about those people that care about me I'm not in fact Jesus goes on to say do not, don't even the tax collectors do the same a tax collector in their day was a traitor in their eyes so a tax collector would love another tax collector because everybody else hated him and he says so if you only love those who love you if you only care about those who care about you you're not any better than a tax collector they do the same thing they love those who tax collectors that love them he goes on to say and if you greet your brethren only what do you more than others don't even the tax collectors do the same or do so as so we ask ourselves a question how friendly are we to every single person that walks through that back door back How much greeting do we actually do 
to as many people as we can? Or are we only in our little group and happy to be in that little group? And don't think about the others. He says tax collectors do that. Therefore, he says, you shall be perfect. That word there would have to mean complete or mature, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Now, God's perfect in his love, and he showed us and gave us examples of it and taught us how to do it. He said, David, you have to do that now in your life. You have to duplicate that in your life. You have to be like Jesus Christ. So with that, I'm going to skip the next six lines and, and move on so we can get some cover some ground. But notice those things. How do we develop that? Well, we meditate on the Word of God. It is the Word that will create within us the fruit of the Spirit. We manage the way we think about other people. How do we do that? Well, we remember the value of one soul. Jesus said, if you gain the whole world and you lose your soul, what have you gained? Or how much would you give in exchange? How many people in, this, in our community, in, how, in our world that we know, how many people have sold their souls for things in the world? He says, we also consider that all men are created equal in God's eyes, and we consider the precious price for my redemption. Because it took just as much blood to save me as it took to save the worst sinner that walks on this earth. Why would I lift myself up as if I'm something very special opposed from that? And then I have to mirror, mirror the mind of Christ. So having said those things, let's go to 1 Corinthians 13. And let's look at verse 4. After Paul has said, without love, those things, he says, now. With all that we've noticed and a lot more that we could notice, he says, number one, love suffers long. In other words, I will be patient with my brethren and not seek revenge if I'm wrong, if I'm wronged by somebody. If somebody does something against me, I'm going to suffer long with that person. Thayer says the word means long-tempered or patient. To have a long spirit, not to lose heart. To persevere patiently and bravely in enduring misfortunes and trouble. Love suffers long. It's patient with those individuals who might do something wrong and mistreat me or my family. It's very difficult for a 
husband or for a wife to see his or her mate attacked verbally by someone else. It's very difficult not to want to get revenge on that person. But then it gets even or as difficult when your children are attacked or even your grandchildren are attacked. People say things about them. People do things behind their back that you know hurts them to the core. It's very difficult as a father and a husband and a grandfather not to say, who do you think you are messing with my family? Look with me at 1 Peter as we think about this. Look at 1 Peter chapter 1. How do I cultivate how do I cultivate this type of patience? We said we let the word of God work in our lives. That means we have to feed upon that word and permeate our hearts and our minds with God's word. And when I'm faced with that decision, now God's word comes to my mind and I react the way God told me to react, regardless of what it looks like to anybody else, regardless of what that person may say about me or what other people may think about me. I'm only interested in mirroring the mind of Christ. Paul says, I mean, Peter says here in verse 22, since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the spirit in sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart. We look at that verse and we say, okay, he says, sincere love the brethren and love one another. Those are two different Greek words. The first, Greek, the first word for love of the brethren is phileo. The brotherly love. When we become Christian and obey the truth through the Spirit, we're going, we, we need to develop a sincere brotherly affection and love for brethren. Because we're brethren, the Greek word literally means of the same womb. We all were born the exact same way through the Word of God. And so we are family. We're brothers. We're sisters. And so we should have that type of family, brotherly affection. But notice what he says. Love, he says, since you've done that, you love agape. You love one another fervently. Not haphazardly. Not if it's convenient for me, depending on what they may do and say about to me. We love one another fervently with a pure heart. And then verse 23, being born again. We're born again by the word of God, verse 23. And that leads me to have a sincere love, affection for the brethren. That means that I'm going to love them, agape love, fervently as best I can. Difficult verses sometimes to carry out when life is throwing at you all kinds of things. So, 
Think about Stephen. When he preached the same message that Peter preached. Stephen's is recorded in Acts 7. Peter's is recorded in Acts 2. On that day, 3,000 people in Acts 2 were pricked in the heart and they said, men and brethren, what shall we do? When Stephen preached it, they were cut to the heart, verse 54 says. And they gnashed on him with their teeth. That is, you have an idea. You ever been in so much pain or so mad at somebody you just gritted your teeth? That's what they did to what they did to Stephen and then they killed him and as he was dying he looked up into heaven and he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God the only time the Bible says he was ever standing every other time it says he was seated and Peter said lay I mean Stephen said lay not this sin to their charge what was he doing he was mirroring what he heard his Lord say from the cross when he said father forgive them well, they know not what they do. How difficult is that for me and you when life is coming at us in all directions, even if it's not brethren, if it's people in the world? How difficult is it to say, have the attitude, I don't want, Father, I don't want you to hold this against them? How much easier is it to say, you'll get what's coming to you down the road? It's all about our attitude. Paul said in Romans 12, let's look, look, let's look at Romans 12. Romans 12, 19. As Paul writes to them, he will begin at verse 17. Romans 12, verse 17. Repay no man or no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. There was a man in my first preaching place that said, David, that's the hardest verse in the Bible for me to obey. Live peaceably with as much as lies within you. Paul said, you may not be able to be at peace with everybody, but it better not be because of you. As much as lies in you, Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for his written vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Now, how do we do that? We always sometimes, we always sometimes stop at that verse, but the word therefore is in verse 20. Here's an example. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, how do we love our enemies? If, you're hung, if your enemy is hungry, say, you, that's good for you. No, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That's how I live peaceably with all men, as much as lies within me. That's how I love my enemies. If he's hungry, give him something to eat. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. Make him feel ashamed or treating me or my family the way he or she did. Heap coals of fire. You know, the old saying is here that there were people who went from one place to the other to get like coals of fire for their, for their own personal fire, for their homes. And when a neighbor came to you and asked you for some coal to put in their fire, 
Not only do you give them what they ask for, but you heap more on top of them. Paul says, be sure you do more than you are asked to do because that perhaps will cause that person to be ashamed of the way he or she is treating you. Don't overcome evil with evil. Overcome evil with good. So how, how do I do this? Well, I'm going I'm to give you the first one because it applies that I have to deal with this on an everyday basis. Don't take out your frustrations on other drivers on the road. And if I'm the only one in here that does that, then y'all need to forgive me. I, I, need, I, need, I need help on that. Sometimes I, don't, I wonder where they got their driver's license. But what good, as Kathy says, what good is it going to do you to get upset with them? I'm the one who has to listen to you. That's a difficult one, isn't it? To be a long-suffering person with people who don't know how to drive. Or flying off the handle over insignificant matters. Or flying off the handle over any matter. How about expressing hostilities openly for everybody to hear? What kind of example is that for a Christian to set? Another one that I have here is rage that's expressed at a ball game at the referees. I'm sitting in a, in a, in a ball game, and somebody over here is not a Christian, and they hear me hollering and screaming at the referee at the top of my lungs. I mean, a pro game, college game, how about it if it's, how about it if it's your own children? I used to umpire those games. I had folks so mad at me. In fact, I heard, I heard after I'd umpired one game that a, a wife's husband was at the game, and she asked him how it went. He said, well, David was the umpire. And she said, well, how do you do? He said, that's the worst umpire I've ever met in my life. My cousin got so mad, he was the coach, that I had to walk away after the game because he, and I came down the hill he, had to, he led his team to apologize to me for the way he treated me. How many of us have never done those things? Suffering long, having patience. How about when a mother deals with a sick child? Or with an infant that can't be comforted? Isn't that long-suffering? That's patience. How about a wife who remains calm or husband who remains calm when his wife or her when her husband is doing things how about a teacher working with a student who's still learning how about elders and preachers as they wait for members to respond positively to sermons that are preached waiting on others to make decisions that affect us either directly or indirectly. How difficult is that? When I got out of preaching school, I just—I was 32 years old. I was old compared to the guys in my class, all except one or two of them. And I just thought since I'd learned the Bible now, all I had to do was just go tell brethren, and they, they would, sure, they just don't know this. When they learn this, they're going to change. I told you this. But 
There was a guy, no, they didn't change. They didn't care what God's word said. They were going to live the way they lived. How difficult is that for a preacher? How difficult is that for an elder? How difficult is that for a wife who waits on her husband to obey the gospel, waits on her husband to become faithful? How about a wife who has to wait on the husband? Wait on children. Children wait on their parents. How difficult is that to have that type of patience and long-suffering? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, love suffers long. There's not any asterisks in there that say, well, unless it's just God's word. True agape love suffers long. That's just the way it is. And if I'm going to be, if I'm going to be faithful to the Lord, I've got to develop that type of love. Yes, I do what the Bible says. And yes, I, if a brother sins, I go to that brother and I tell him he sinned against me. If he won't listen, I take witnesses. If he won't listen to that, eventually that person needs to be withdrawn from. Yes, there are there are laws that God put rules that God put into place. But individually, I need to be like Christ. From the cross, when they walked by and wagged their heads at him and made those gestures like, if you saved others, why don't you save yourself? If you're the Son of God, come down off the cross. Have you ever wondered how much patience that took on the part of the Lord? The creator of the entire world who had enough power to clean that earth of all those people and he never said a word. He suffered long for me. And he says, now David, if you're going to be my brother, faithful, if you're going to be my father's child, you're going to have to have that type of love in your life. You're going to have to be that way. Time's about two minutes still. I promise you, if the Lord wills and next week gets here, we're not going into any more introductory work. We've already set all the stages we're going to set. We're going to do our best to cover half of these qualifications or half of these characteristics next week and then the last week of the month or the last week of the, yes, of the month. We're going to finish that chapter out and finish those qualifications or characteristics out. If you want a challenge, read those verses 4 through 7. Put your name in there. David suffers long. David is kind. David doesn't envy. Put your name in there. Read that each day. And see if we, if we measure up. Not to what David says. Or not what the elders say. If we measure up to what God says. Because he says without this. We're not faithful. We've got to have this kind of love. And I'll, end, I'll, I'll close with this. We need to be. More long suffering with each other. Than we expect God to be with us have you ever done something wrong and said well I'm glad I serve a loving God who's long suffering and yet we turn around like, like the brother did or the servant did in, in that Matthew 18 and we go strangle somebody in the throat because they did us wrong on a small little insignificant matter we need to be careful Andrew we need to just have a prayer to close and then everybody leaves at the same time. 
Okay, I'm just I'm just making sure protocols. You know, I'm gonna turn you loose here. Let's uh, let's go to our Father in prayer. Our gracious Father, we thank you for loving us. We thank you for your mercy and your long suffering. We thank you, our Father, that you call us your children, and that we can be like our elder brother. We can be like the Christ. Help us, Father, to suffer long with each other. Help us to have the kind of love that's characteristic of heaven and that should be characteristic of his body here on this earth. Bless us and keep us safe as we travel. Lead us to some soul who needs to hear the gospel. Help us to keep our eyes open for those who need the truth. And may we be willing and able at that moment to teach them what they need to hear. And by all means, may we live it in front of them as your child. Keep us safe, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.